Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 5. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you pass that to the center aisle, we'd love to receive that and be assured of our prayers for you this week. We're talking about the love of God, the first mention of it in the book of Romans, and uh, this is something we love to think about. D.A. Carson, I came across one of his books um, some years ago, and among evangelical scholars, he's always the smartest guy in the room. And so uh, he, he wrote a little book entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And at first I thought, well, that's strange. We would think of the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of predestination or um, some other aspect of theology to be more challenging than the love of God. Certainly everybody agrees on that. And I thought Carson's explanation was just spot on. He says, if people believe in God at all today, The overwhelming majority hold that this God, whoever he, she, or it may be understood, is a loving being. But this makes our witness more difficult because often the love of God is set in some matrix or environment other than biblical theology. We live in a culture in which many other and complementary truths about God are widely rejected or disbelieved. I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it's removed from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God, to mention only a few non-negotiables for the Christian faith. So in sum, when Christians talk about the love of God, they mean something very different from what is meant in the surrounding culture. That's what he meant by the difficult doctrine of the love of God. And we live at a time of a vast biblical illiteracy, which is increasing today. Many in our culture know little or nothing about the Western moral tradition, which is centered and rooted in the, in the Bible. I mean, that's just a historical fact. Back when Jay Leno was on the air, he used to do these interviews on the street and um, one night he collared uh, some young people to ask questions about the Bible. And he asked, can you name one of the Ten Commandments? And he asked uh, this uh, to two college-age women. One replied, freedom of speech. Mr. Leno said to the other, complete the sentence. Let he who is without sin. Her response was, have a good time. Mr. Leno then turned to a young man and asked, who according to the Bible was eaten by a whale? And the confident answer was Pinocchio. People just don't have any frame of reference with the Bible at all. So maybe that illustration kind of makes you uncomfortable. I got an easy resolve. Start reading the Bible. Start reading it. Because you will be taking into your hands not only the timeless word of God, but you will also uh, be uh, informing yourself on the foundation of what has um, informed Western morality. But we're not saved by morality, we're saved by the gospel. Most people view the love of God as that of a benevolent grandfather. Uh, No moral judgments, oh no, he would never do that. No imposing commands. Uh, I was reminded as Doug took us back to Deuteronomy, uh, God's warning to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, 47, where he threatens bad things to them if they're not happy in the Lord. 
But the God of the 21st century, he's no moral judge, no imposing commands. He's a deity, a deity that, that doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Basically because he is a God who loves, he accepts me just as I am. And this is, uh, means that I'm free to do whatever I want. And he will sanction what I choose to do because he wants me to be happy. But that, as you know, has no biblical counterpart at all. Um, this may be the God of your imagination, but it's not the God of the Bible. Right now, we're reading as a staff Albert Moeller's uh, book, The Gathering Storm. And if you're wanting a, a faithful, responsible um, analysis of all the cultural trends that we're dealing with right now that are moving us forward with great velocity uh, to chaos... Uh, I would recommend Dr. Muller's book, The Gathering Storm. And he, he, he writes that the gathering storm is over Western civilization, uh, the church, human life, marriage, the family, gender and sexuality, religious liberty. And he, he has noted the increasing secularization of our culture has rejected truth claims, biblical truth claims, subjective, uh, truth is subjective and moldable, it's in the eye of the beholder. And so with the secular spirit in which we live, it treats religion as a mere hobby, redefines essential Christian beliefs in subtle ways. Moeller mentioned the work of sociologist Christian Smith, who I've mentioned from this pulpit before, 15 years actually, where he came out in the mid-2006 with this term, moralistic therapeutic deism where he was interviewing youth in churches, not in the rank and file of culture, but in churches. And he used this term moralistic, meaning there's a code of ethics, therapeutic, it's, makes, it's beneficial and makes me feel good. Uh, deism, some spirituality to it, that there is a God, whether it's a capital G or a little g. And describing extensive work that te- the teens in churches. So Smith has revisited this research 15 years later And this moralistic, therapeutic deism, what's that, you know, 50-cent word? What does it mean? It consists of believing in some God who exists and created the world. A God who wants people to to be gentle and kind. And and the goal of life is happiness and self-fulfillment. And perhaps most devastating is the general belief that good works secure a person's place in heaven. And Christian Smith says this is what, by and large... Many youth believe in churches, which is, which is certainly not a gospel hope. And by the way, I should say, our goal is not to live a sour, bitter, unhappy life. On the contrary, of all people on the planet, we should be overflowing in joy for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Our happiness is in Him. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he's fruitful and blessed. As described by Christian Smith and his team, this devastating belief, again, is a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, 
The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life. Except when needed to resolve a problem. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die. That in some is the creed to which much adolescent faith can be reduced. After conducting more than 3,000 interviews with American adolescents, the researchers reported that when it came to the most crucial questions of faith and beliefs, many adolescents responded with a shrug, whatever. We exist to make known the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we, we live for the glory of God. That He is our hope and our refuge We've been plowing through the book of Romans with detail on purpose that we might rightly understand the gospel that God has given to us and that is being laid out by the Apostle Paul. And the response is not whatever. (laughs) The response is believe, serve the Lord with gladness and with a whole heart. The gospel is God's saving work through His Son, Jesus Christ, And it comes to a world that is hostile and rebellious to God's ways and God's commands. As we have traveled through some rough and essential terrain in the book of Romans, we come for the first time to the love of God. And Paul has positioned it here by the Holy Spirit that we might see it against the dark backdrop of living in this world. And we do live in a groaning creation, don't we? I was listening this week to a podcast just of the miseries and the sorrows on the, uh, on the planet. I mean, life, think of, think of life before antibiotics. 300 million people died of smallpox. So many, so many sorrows. It's a groaning planet. Does God care in the midst of the suffering? The worldview that we hold is that yes, and the strongest demonstration that he cares is that he sent his one and only son into this misery to provide redemption and eternal life. And it's to him we look. We're in need of salvation, every one of us. We're in need of the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're in need of redemption. We need to be saved. Isn't that a wonderful word, saved? Maybe you're not familiar with that word. You've heard Christians say, I was saved when I was 20, or I was saved 10 years ago, or now I'm saved. What does that mean? Saved from what? Well, you need to understand that that is a biblical word that is used many times over. In fact, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. In Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. In John 3.17, Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 10.9, I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This love of God is the strongest bond we can know because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8. In Acts 2.22, Peter 
He said, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be, I would say it's a, it's a biblical word, re, well represented, wouldn't you? It's a glorious word. To be saved from what? Well, not from an appendicitis or cancer or heart surgery, but God's rightful judgment that abides upon us. We're in need of redemption, every one of us. And so that brings us to the love of God because that's where redemption is birthed in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. He purposed to send his son to redeem a people. And you look at the book of Revelation and around the throne of God from every tongue and tribe and kindred and land are people giving praise to the, to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So would you look with me at verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, and I want to break it up in, in a couple of ways, several ways actually. If you get your sermon insert, it serves a wonderful purpose to kind of guide us through, and also you can be comforted, there, there is an ending. <laughs> there is a plan. <laughs> and so what I want to look first, as we look at the love of God, is that God's love against the dark backdrop of human sin. And again, we see here in verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And so as you look at these verses, as we look at them together, we're described in a most uncomplimentary way. We're described as weak in verse 6. At the end of that same verse, we're called ungodly. As we continue on, we're referenced as sinners in verse 8. And in verse 10, we're called enemies. So that's the dark backdrop, which provides kind of a summary of Romans 1 through 3. Let me back up to verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. This gospel good news, this saving work of God that is offered to you, by the way, right now, this morning is offered to you, to anyone who would turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, yielding your life to him, seeing him for who he is, agreeing with who he is, and believing and trusting him for your soul. There's no shame in that. And... We mentioned last week that the Bible is often presented in a shame-honor culture in the ancient world that is still operative and alive and well in many parts of the world. And that is the greatest thing that can happen to you is public honor. The greatest thing, the worst thing that can happen to you is public shame. And by being put to shame, that means the public disgrace. And so this honor and shame is woven throughout the gospel and in the end of it all, when your life comes to an end, your life surrendered to Jesus Christ will never be the source of your shame. For you will see that you have lived for him and his opinion is the only one that will matter on that day. You will never be ashamed. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You ever wondered, okay, God acted definitively in Jesus Christ. I see that. I receive that as historical fact. Why did he do so 21 centuries ago? We're, we're in the 21st century. How could this ancient message possibly be relevant in the 21st century? No relevance apart from the fact that God has entered in. And at the right time, he sent forth his son. Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. I think the way to understand that is that God is eternal and we're not. Peter mentions something in one of his letters that a thousand years is what to God? A thousand years are but a, a day to him. Not to us. We say, wow, 2,000 years, that's, that's a lot of history. Indeed it is. But when you're God... It's insignificant by comparison to the way we evaluate things. At the right time, at the right time in the terms of God's plan, he sent forth his son. And it says Christ died for us. Christ died both for, as our representative and as our substitute. He was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. Scripture is clear to make that known to us. That he was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. So he is the only one qualified to die on our behalf as a substitute. He knew no sin. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So the suffering of Christ was not only exemplary, but accomplished atonement for us. Reconciliation with the God we're at odds with. So notice again these uncomplimentary terms that are given to us. We're weak. We're ungodly, we're sinners, we're enemies. That's, that's how we understand the love of God to us. That's our curriculum vitae, that's our resume. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner wrote, these verses emphasize the priority of God's love for he died for those who are weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And saying that Christ died for us while we were still weak, Paul probably emphasizes that Christ died for us before we made any move toward him, for how could we? Christ did not die for sinners because he detected in them an inclination toward God or a desire to end the enmity toward him. He died to overcome our enmity and hostility of the ungodly towards himself. So, Let's break this down a little further. We, were, we want to understand the love of God in light of this, that we were weak, powerless, and helpless. Weak denotes frailty of humanity as members of a fallen world. Jesus said to his disciples, you remember when they were in the garden? Pray for me. The spirit is willing, but the what? The flesh is weak, and Jesus would come back in that night of agony, and you could hear the snoring. Couldn't you have prayed for a little while? The spirit is willing, but the 
Flesh is weak, and I'm not a Tolkien scholar by any means, but doesn't he bring that to the forefront if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit? Human frailty and weakness? Our weakness by implication means that we're afflicted, distressed, and wretched. James Boyce said, only the strongest terms will do in this context, since the idea is that left to ourselves, none of us is able to do even one small thing to please or achieve salvation. To please God or achieve salvation. And I can hear the, I can hear the objection, can't you? Maybe it's your objection this morning. What are you talking about, preacher? Says the person with, who's confident in their skill set. I am fully capable of taking care of the responsibilities of my life. What do you mean that I can't add one thing that God wouldn't be pleased with apart from Jesus Christ? Uh, Other than to say that no one can please God in the flesh. And that's what we're in apart from the new birth, apart from salvation. Scripture is clear that before God, apart from His saving grace, we are powerless, helpless, to please God or earn favor. We are unable to understand spiritual things. We are unable to see the kingdom of God or to enter it. Jesus said you must be born again. We're unable to seek God, as Romans 3.11 tells us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. I would call that weakness, wouldn't you? Powerless. Notice secondly, since we're patting each other on the back this morning. We were ungodly in rebellion against God. This word describes the rebellion of the human race toward God. Look at verse, uh, or, uh, we just referenced Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Our ways are not his ways. Do you find that when you come to church? As we open the Word of God together, we're thinking one thing, we're doing one thing, and we read the Word of God and it confronts us. I'm on the wrong road. I'm plowing in the wrong field. I'm committed to the wrong things. That should be the experience we have uh, throughout our Christian life. That's the Word of God bringing correction and guidance to us. Our ways are not His ways. And Scripture pictures us in fierce opposition to him. We don't like his sovereignty. We, we don't want him to reign over us. Like ancient Israel, we, we, don't, we don't want him to reign over us. His holiness, we reject his righteous standards. Why do we have to throw back to a retro morality that's so imposing? We resent his commands. We chafe under his rules. And the fact that he doesn't change, he's immutable, we're irritated that he doesn't change because this world thinks that we have moved on to greater things and greater standards. Look what we can do. Life without God. So we're ungodly in rebellion against God apart from his grace. Thirdly, we are sinners by nature and by choice. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as we think about how we've broken God's laws, it's kind of described where we've broken commandments one through four, which relate to our relationship with God. We've we've had other gods, we've made idols, we've taken his name in vain. 
We've neglected his Sabbath, his rest in Christ. We haven't honored our father and mother. We have been murderous in our thoughts, if not our actions. Adultery, stealing, lying, covetousness. We have broken all of them. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then finally, um, we were enemies in a perpetual state of defiance. Verse 10, this is hard for us to grasp. In fact, none of us would if it were not clearly taught in Scripture. To be an enemy of God, that's hard to handle. We're unable to redeem ourselves. We are opposed to Him. We're violators of His law. In fact, I was so gripped this week in reading on this, and this isn't cheery preaching, I know that, but we're talking about the love of God today. And it's not as the culture would see it. The reason it's so dear and precious to us is because of this this backdrop that Paul is careful to paint right before he talks about it. But James Boyce said, we are opposed to God in the sense that we would attack him and destroy him if we could. Being like Satan in his desires, we we would drag God from his throne, cast him to hell, and crush him into nothingness, if that were possible. Oh, isn't that an over... Isn't that an overreach? All you need to do is look at how this world treated Jesus Christ. I love the song that we sing, um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And the, the songwriter identifies his voice among the scoffers. Paul wants to emphasize the greatness and distinctiveness of God's love and sending Christ to die for those who are wicked and rebellious and and hating him. Which leads us, secondly, to God's demonstration of love and that it defies human consideration. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. What's he talking about here? Well, he's contrasting human sacrificial love, which manifests itself occasionally on behalf of the righteous or the good, with the love of God, which is demonstrated against those who are evil and wicked. His point is that it is uncommon for a person to sacrifice his own life in order to save the life, even if someone viewed favorably. And we're all moved by the good person in the human realm who lays their life down. I think of a mother's love. Don't you? If you were blessed to have a mother who expressed this kind of love for you, you know what that's like. She laid down her life for you. When you were so helpless And unable to care for yourself, she took care of that for years. Little wonder God would say, honor your father and mother. Or a sacrificial father who laid down his life in so many ways for the good of his children. We've heard of stories of sacrificial deaths on the battlefield, dying for one's country, 
acts of heroism where one lays down one's life for others. Jesus said as, as much as, as John 15, and I love how Disney back in the old days quotes that in the Jungle Book. Greater love has no one than this, that one, someone lay down his life for his friends. I was reminded this is as well, reading Donald Gray Barnhouse and his commentary. He, he shares the story of this tough young man from the streets of a large city and his sister had been crippled and needed an operation and the operation was provided for her but after the operation she needed a blood transfusion and the boy her brother was asked to volunteer and he was taken to the bedside and watched uh, uh, tight-lipped as the needle was inserted into his arm into his vein and the blood was fed into his, his sister's body When the transfusion was over, the doctor put his arm on the boy's shoulder and told him that he had been very brave. And the youngster knew nothing about the nature of transfusions, but the doctor knew even less about the actual bravery of that boy until the boy looked up at him and asked steadily, Doc, how long before I croak? He had gotten the idea that if he was going to give a transfusion to his sister, he was going to give it all. And drop by drop, he thought he was going to die. And he did it anyway. These stories sober us because in them we recognize something of the the highest human love and we appreciate that and that does motivate us. Yet when we read of the love of God in Romans 5, we learn that it's not for those who were close to him or who loved him that Jesus died, but for those who were opposed to him. And described in the terms we've looked at. Giving one's life for a wicked person is not even a consideration. But that's what God has done many times over to every one of us. God's love has done just that for the weak, the ungodly, the sinners, and the enemies of him. He demonstrated his great love to us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Not good people, rebels. I think this adds to our appreciation to the love of God, don't you? It's not that God accepts me as I am and I can live however I want and He's going to sanction whatever I do. But it leads to an amazement that He would even come to us While we were rebellious and quite unlovely, Jesus came to build a bridge for our greatest need, and that that is to God. I love the story of the dying thief, don't you? On the cross next to Jesus. (laughs) I love to reflect on this and often do when I think of the love of God. Here's a man who Matthew records earlier on in the day. Uh, Matthew records both of the thieves are hurling accusations at him. Luke records that there's a change in one of them, the one we love to talk about. And he says, remember, the thief says to Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now you begin to think, what did this thief have to offer him? What did this thief have to offer Jesus? He would never do any good things. He was moments from dying. He would never give anything. He would never go to a religious service. 
the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain of blood that we've shed for him, that fountain. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Thirdly, the ultimate love expressed on the cross, Christ died for us, verse 8. Christ died for us. John MacArthur said, when a person receives salvation through Jesus Christ, he enters a spiritual love relationship with God that lasts through all eternity. God's love has been poured out into our heart, verse 5 says. This speaks to the lavish outpouring to the point of overflowing. God's love is not dispensed through a dropper, but is released in an unmeasurable, immeasurable flow. Sometimes we wonder if there's any love uh, at all in this world, and we see it manifested through God's people, through the, His common grace, and through His church. God has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to take up residence within us. All through Paul's letters, he longed for the believers in Ephesus, Colossae, and other places that they would grow in their comprehension of the knowledge of the love of God. But if I were to ask you, of all the verses in the Bible that speak of the love of God, and we did a poll here in this room this morning, what do you think that verse would be? John 3.16, that's right. That is, that is the verse we would all look to. It is a great sum of the gospel. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is a great sum of the gospel. It's not everything we need to know, but it's a great sum. And we love it. That there is a God. There is a God. This verse begins with, for God. The Bible begins with a declaration, not with a bunch of arguments about the existence of God, but with a declaration that God created the heavens and the earth. With regard to redemption, there is a God. For God so loved the world. All kinds of people, all sorts of people, all sorts of sinners, all tribes of people, all nations of people, and we begin with God and we don't rush over that. There is a God for which we are created in His image. He is our creator. He's created us in His image and therefore we're accountable to Him. Next, this verse says that God loves. Of all the things we could say about Him, He loves. Everything changes when it comes to the Father, Son, and Spirit, Michael Reeves wrote. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is at the root of who He is. God is love. And God so loved the world. He loved the world. Not, it's not speaking of He loved, loved Him this much. Rather, He so loved the world. He loved the world in this, in this way in a son kind of way, in a giving of his son. He loves the world. That means he loves you. And this call of the gospel is extended to you in love. That you would surrender your heart and life to him and put down your 
arms of unbelief and surrender to his call to you. The one who created you is the one who redeems you. It's not by works of righteousness what you've done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves. To look to him. In this context of John 3.16, John references Moses in the wilderness that he, uh, Israel was living in rebellion and God sent fiery serpents in their midst. And what, what was Moses commanded to do? Make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And what was the command? Look. <laughs> Look at the serpent and you will be saved. And John holds this up. For us that we would not look to a serpent on a pole but we would look to God's son on a cross there is a God he has a son he loves he loves the world he loves the world that love can come to you today through surrender to him and you need to do that not as a self-help program we've had enough of that You need to come to him because there's a perishing in John 3.16, isn't there? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not. What's that mean? That means to die in your sins. Without hope. Without God. There's no back door to give other opportunities. The Bible presents the gospel in these terms. There is a perishing that we want to avoid. And we avoid that by coming his way. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I just believe in many ways to God, many roads to God. You read the Bible and it says there's only one road. Nobody enters heaven by saying, you know, I got here my way. The only way anybody gets there is God's way. Through his son. So this perishing, how, what's involved with that? Jesus used eternal life and eternal punishment in the same way. The same word, eternal. You've thought about eternity in a while? You know, I, I think that's part of being created in the image of God. That God has set eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3 says. God has put eternity in our hearts. And I often think about in the created order, no one needs to teach a beaver how to build a dam. Nobody needs to teach a bee how to make honey. And nobody needs to inform us that there's more to life than what we see. God has put within us eternity. And we'll spend it in one of two places. You ever thought of how long eternity is? Some years ago, I heard it expressed this way. Suppose a little bird flies to the beach on the Atlantic side and picks up a grain of sand and flies to the plains of Kansas and deposits the grain and flies back. And every thousand years he makes the trip, picks up a grain of sand, brings it, puts it down. Another thousand years later, picks up another grain of sand. When the, that pile of sand is as high as Mount Everest, eternity will have begun. We've often said life is tissue paper thin. We don't know what a day will bring forth. We're not to boast about tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
This is a call to believe and to receive and to accept and to trust the promises of God found in Jesus Christ. And there you will find and there you will experience the love of God. God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you receive it on God's terms and come his way, which is by faith? Would you bow with me in prayer as our praise team comes, as we prepare to sing our final song this morning? What a calling to do some inventory on our life. Would you call out to him in these closing moments? Would you lay your soul before him? What he's done for others, he can do for you. His salvation is his gift in these days of grace. Receive him now by faith. Lord, I pray for the range of needs in this room this morning. You know them all. I pray that we would end this service in faith. And Lord, that we would surrender our hearts to you, that the living of our life would be a testimony of your goodness to us and your love that's been poured out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.